Ever since the 10th century, the first Sunday after Pentecost has always been designated as Trinity Sunday, one of the church's principal feast days. Trinity Sunday celebrates the diversity of God's nature, His goodness in the creation and the redemption of the world, and His call upon each and every one of us to introduce others through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to introduce others to Jesus Christ. I say this because Christianity is a missionary faith. We heard that loud and clear in this morning's gospel from Matthew. We call it the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The very nature of God implores us to do this. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our Lord's death on the cross was for the whole world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So we are to live as those who were created in the image of God. Then we will want to tell the good news about God's love in Jesus Christ to all those around us who do not yet know of Him. And just who is this triune God? that we are to make known to other people. Well, we define the Trinity as three distinct persons in one divine being or essence. God the Father created us and all that there is in the world. God the Son redeemed us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, that is, sets us apart, instilling faith in our hearts and enabling us to lead the kind of new life, regenerate life, that God has called us to live, a life in which we're always seeking to, to bear within us the very mind of Christ and to live the way He wants us to live. The doctrine of the Trinity is at the very heart, core, and center of our Christian faith. We profess that faith every single Sunday in either the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed in morning prayer, the Nicene, whenever we do the Eucharist. What Jesus' first disciples knew was that the Trinity could never really fully be explained. It had to be experienced and worshipped. For us, the Trinity is an experience with the mystery of God's ultimate self-disclosure. I'm talking about the disclosure of His divine love, a love that's not only experienced, but a love that is exuded by the proclaiming of the saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ to the world. In the Scriptures, God is not seen as a plurality, but as a unity. Now, if we're going to decipher this Trinitarian math, it's that the mystery of the Holy Trinity being numerically one exists in three persons. Each person is distinct from the other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet each one is true and eternal God. They work together in unity, in concert, in harmony with one another, like that of a choir. 
each singer's individual voices, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, singing as with one voice in an ensemble of sound. Well, taking a look at today's gospel, we find that it's actually a continuation of the Easter story. Two women go to the tomb on Easter day and discover that it's empty. He is not here, the angel tells them. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. The women then leave the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they run to tell Jesus' disciples that he's risen. While on their way, they meet Jesus, and he says to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Then comes this remarkable statement in the gospel that I just read to you. When the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. That one little phrase seems to be an accurate description of what so often happens when we approach our three-in-one and one-in-three God. The translation we're using this morning says, some doubted. However, a more literal translation from the Greek says, they doubted. Which means that quite possibly it was more than just the 11 disciples that went up on that mountain in Galilee that day. It was most likely part of a much larger group, perhaps some of the 120 faithful followers of Jesus Christ that were with him throughout his earthly ministry. Well, regardless of the number, the point is that worship and doubt stand together side by side. They're not mutually exclusive. That the disciples doubted doesn't mean that they had no faith or that they didn't believe. Rather, it means that they gave their hearts to him, but their heads just couldn't make sense of it all. Their hearts and their heads weren't aligned. Their experience was real, but their human logic and their human understanding just didn't match the depth and the reality of their actual experience with God. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Well, if it has, then I want to assure you that you're not alone. If you're totally confused and befuddled about who and what the Trinity is, then I hope that these three simple metaphors will serve to help you get your mind around just who the triune God is. Here's the first one. For a moment, I want you to try to define love. Have you ever tried to explain to your spouse, your child, or someone very near and dear to you, someone that you love, what that love means? Well, make a list and count the ways. They're pretty, or they're handsome. You're attracted to them. They're smart and funny. You have a lot in common. You enjoy the many things that you do together. You trust them. They're fun to be with. They're a good cook. They have a good job. They're a good provider. They make you happy. And you can't imagine what life would be like without them. Well, after a while, that list might begin to sound somewhat shallow and superficial because you realize that at a much deeper level, 
Your list does not even begin to adequately describe what that love actually means. How can words ever describe or capture the beauty and mystery of two lives that are shared as one? No longer two, but one flesh, Genesis says. That's how God created them, male and female. Can words ever fully explain giving yourself to another person so completely that you live within the other and they live within you? Neither one losing themselves, but each one finding their true and complete self within the other. Well, I doubt it. Words simply fail us. Some things like love can only be experienced, can never be fully understood, explained, or even defined. Which brings me to the second metaphor. Can you recall a time when you were completely entranced and mesmerized by the beauty of a sunset? Did you see last night's? Absolutely phenomenal. Across the water, across the Cooper River, I watched it, and it was phenomenal. Clouds become a kaleidoscope of changing colors. Bright reds, yellows, oranges, and my favorite, pink grapefruit. Lights sparkling and dancing on the leaves of the trees, on the marsh, on the sand, on the ocean, on the rivers. How do you explain that? The colors, were they just light rays refracted by dust particles and condensed water vapor floating around in the air? I doubt it. You see, some things like beauty can be experienced, but they can never fully or adequately be expressed through the human language. And here's the third metaphor. Have you ever held the wonder and mystery of a newborn baby in your arms? Well, I don't often get the chance to do so, but I've done many, many times I've done it whenever I've had the privilege to baptize a newborn infant, and I've baptized many hundreds of them throughout my ministry. What I so vividly remember are those tiny little wrinkled fingers with those ever so teeny specks for fingernails and the soft breath of that baby brushing my cheek and that slight radiant smile looking up at me, beaming up at me, absolutely melting my heart. Now, how can one adequately explain that? What words can describe such an incredible moment like that? We're not simply gazing at that little one and seeing the result of a biological process that came to fruition in that newborn's life. No, we're seeing and declaring one of God's most incredible miracles of all, the miracle of newly created life. Well, those are just three examples that are but a minute fraction feeble metaphors, attempting to give us a picture of the mystery of something that is vastly larger and much more complex than life itself. I'm talking about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. When they saw him, they worshiped him. They were in utter awe of him. But some, some doubted. We love we acknowledge great beauty. 
We hold new life in our hands, <clears throat> and yet sometimes we doubt. In each of these three contexts, doubt is not a deficiency. Rather, it's a declaration that we have actually glimpsed and been touched by the divine, and that these are indeed sacramental experiences in our lives. That is, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace imparted by God as a gift whereby we receive that grace. It's the recognition that our experiences are even greater than our words could ever possibly express or our minds could ever possibly grasp. In the end, these experiences transform our lives in ways that words, explanations, and doctrinal constructs never will. If that's true about love, <clears throat> beauty, and new life, then how could it not be also true about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Just like the disciples on that mountain in Galilee, we worship, and yet often we doubt. We experience the reality of who God is, and we cannot make complete sense out of it. Despite the Trinitarian math of three equals one and one equals three, when all is said and done, explaining the Trinity is way beyond words, beyond description, and beyond our human comprehension. Gregory of Nazianzus, a bishop in the fourth century, put it this way, no sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three, and no sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. If the Trinity is about anything, it's about love, beauty, and new life. We may not be able to explain it, but we know it. We know it when we experience it. But well, there's one more dimension of the Trinity that I want us to take a look at this morning. That's one based on this quote by the great Scottish theologian and philosopher John Macquarie, who wrote, the theme of life that we expound and sustain is that the self is constituted by relation to the other. The self is constituted by relation to the other. For example, infants are made to be cared for. They're born into a loving relationship with their mother and father, which is inherently very personal. Not only their development, but their very survival depends upon maintaining the relationship that they rely upon for their very existence. The habits they form, the intellect they develop, the skills they acquire, all fall within the framework of a personal human relationship. You see, the human experience is what? It's a shared experience. It's not so much the I that we need to be concerned about, but the you and I. Inherent to human life are the relationships that we have with each other. Think, for instance, of what some of your really best moments in life have been. However you might describe them, the bottom line is this. Those moments occurred when you were in relationship 
with another human being. When your mother or father, your wife, your husband, your child gave you a big hug and told you, I love you. When a teacher in school affirmed the good work that you were doing. When someone you work with gave you a pat on the back and told you just how much they appreciated what you were doing. Well, we remember those as some of the best moments in our life because they were moments when we were in relationship with another human being. On the other hand, think about this. Think about what our justice system does when they, were, when they want to punish someone rather severely. What do they do? They place them in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. No relationships allowed whatsoever. Those of you who've been through a divorce know the pain of a failed relationship. Those of you who haven't spoken with a parent or a child, a brother or a sister for years, know the pain of a relationship that's gone bad. Those of you who adamantly refuse to seek reconciliation and forgiveness in any relationship in your life that's hurting or broken, know the, the crippling and exhausting effect that it has upon your life. Alienation is the word we use to describe it, isn't it? It's brought on by a rigid, recalcitrant refusal to let go, to give in, to compromise, and yes, to forgive. That's why all of us have such a crying need for forgiveness. I'm talking about the forgiveness that begins with God reaching down to us through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross to wash away all of our sins and then by us reaching out to others wherever forgiveness is needed the most. Well, the point of all this talk about relationships on this Feast of the Holy Trinity is simply this, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God's revelation to us that relationships are what God is all about. Because we're created in the image of God, we're imprinted with the need to be in relationship with one another. God created us to live a life in relationship with Him and with others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The relationship is between God and us, us and our neighbor. I dare say that God implanted that directly into our DNA. Matthew's Gospel concludes with these reassuring words from Jesus. I am with you always to the close of the age. Christ is with us, always. Christ is with us wherever we go. When he was born into this world, he came as Emmanuel, God with us. And when he came to the end of his earthly ministry and was about to ascend into heaven, he promised us that he would be with us always. He is with us daily to pardon us, 
to forgive us from our sins, to sanctify us and to strengthen our faith, to keep us in his care, to lead and guide us in our joys and in our sorrows, in sickness and in health, in life and in death, in time and in eternity. This past Monday, Memorial Day, I did something I hadn't done in six or seven months. I went down to the beach and I took a long, long walk all by myself. While there, I watched two young children, a boy and a girl. They were working hard building an elaborate sandcastle with towers and moats and walls in it. They even filled the little moat around it with water, which just, of course, went right back into the sand. They had almost finished their project when, well, you can almost guess what happened. A large wave came along, huge wave, and just knocked it all down. I'd expected that the children were going to burst into tears at what, what had just happened. But no, to my great surprise, they ran up the shore, away from the water, laughing and holding each other's hands, and simply sat back down with their, all, all their little beach tools, shovels and the like, and began to build another castle. They taught me a very important lesson, namely that all the things in our lives, all the complicated structures we spend so much time and energy creating are all built on sand. Only our relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our relationships with one another will endure. Sooner or later, the waves of life will come along and knock down all that we've worked so hard to build up. And when that happens, the only person who has somebody's hand to hold on to will be able to rebuild. When Jesus takes a hold of your hand and mine and assures you that I am with you always to the close of the age. We can be certain that whatever may come our way in life, knowing that our weak hand is being held by the hand of a strong, loving, and compassionate God, we will always, always be safe and secure. And now unto God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be ascribed as his most justly due, all might, majesty, dominion, and power, now and forevermore. Amen.